Welcome to Manage Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Incero, the Senior Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. 33 states and the District of Columbia have medical marijuana or cannabis programs, and some of these states have adult use programs, commonly referred to as recreational marijuana. A recent paper in Health Affairs called Qualifying Conditions of Medical Cannabis License Holders in the United States took a look at why people use medical marijuana, and in this episode of Manage Carecast, I'm talking with one of the co-authors about their findings. We also talked about some of the issues in medical marijuana research. Kevin Benke is a research investigator at the University of Michigan and one of the co-authors of the paper. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. When you began this study, your hypothesis was that the proportion of medical cannabis licenses would align with what we think we know about the efficacy of cannabis and the prevalence of the condition. What did you find and were you surprised by the results? We, what we found was quite aligned with our hypotheses in the sense that the conditions that were the most prevalent did have the most people who used cannabis for those purposes and and also the conditions that had the strongest evidence of efficacy of cannabis for treating those conditions were also those that were uh, most heavily represented. In terms of being surprised, because the situation around cannabis is so controversial and so all over the place, we obviously had these hypotheses going in, but we thought that it was totally possible that the numbers would be something completely different, uh, given that there's a lot of advocacy groups that are adding cannabis uh, as a qualifying condition in many states without there necessarily being any evidence to support that. And also because there's the possibility, which we talk about in the paper, that a lot of people were just using, just obtaining a medical cannabis license to get legal cover to use cannabis recreationally. So those were some some things that we considered that we thought might have skewed some of the the results that we found. But in fact, what what we found was quite in alignment with our hypotheses. And the condition that people are using medical marijuana for the most is chronic pain. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Were there any other findings in this paper that surprised you? Not really. I I guess we were somewhat surprised to see how dominant chronic pain was. The fact that there are more patient-reported qualifying conditions for chronic pain than any other qualifying condition, as well as all of the other ones combined. We thought that we would see a lot of chronic pain just given how common it was, uh, the fact that it can be a standalone condition like fibromyalgia, as well as a symptom in many conditions like cancer um, or multiple sclerosis. But the fact that it was just so overwhelmingly dominating, I guess we, we might call that a little bit surprising. Why do you think that is? A few reasons. I think 
uh, chronic pain is such a dominating uh, patient reported qualifying condition because, again, it is extremely common. It and under many state laws, it's allowed as a qualifying condition or qualifying symptom, and so that's a very very open ended diagnosis for somebody to get a medical cannabis license. Um, it doesn't have the same kind of stringent diagnostic criteria as, as other things. Like uh, it's it's so to go back to the point of if it's if there are people who potentially are using uh, medical cannabis as a cover for recreational use, chronic pain is probably the easiest one to use uh, as a cover because it is so. You can just go in and say, "Hey, I have pain." I think that's that's one reason. I think. I think that's probably not the most important reason, though. I think one of the issues that we're seeing with chronic pain is that it is very challenging to to manage and treat effectively. And so I think some of what we're seeing in this medical cannabis data is the fact that a lot of medications uh, that people take for chronic pain have challenging side effects that don't work especially well for people. And so there's a lot of interest among people with chronic pain in testing something different that they perceive to be safer and an alternative. And so this is something that is borne out in a lot of the clinical studies, including ones that I and, and many people around the country have done, is that one of the, the big rationales that people cite for using cannabis for chronic pain is they say that it provides better symptom management and has fewer side effects. And so, of course, this, this is something that we need a lot more research on, on how best to use different cannabinoids, um, how to choose the best formulations and administration groups. But that's, that's the rationale that uh, that patients are consistently citing. Is there a relationship between the chronic pain indication for marijuana and what's happening with states? Uh, some states are allowing it to be used for opioid use disorder. Uh, I think a few states have started to add that as a qualifying condition. Is that correct? Yeah, a couple states have added uh, opioid use disorder as a, as a qualifying condition. And I think I think it is possible that there is some link there. I think that it's been pretty well documented that exposure to opioids in a medical setting, be it after surgery or for chronic pain or something else, does increase the risk of dependence. And there's also many observational studies that have reported, including, again, ones that I've been a part of, that have that patients have said uh, that they have decreased their opioid use after they initiated cannabis use, and so it's possible to me that that those things are happening. I think the, the question gets a little bit stickier when you get into the more addiction side of things. So it's it's one thing to say, okay, I'm taking some opioids and uh, I don't particularly like them. I'm going to use cannabis instead. But, you know, I've only been taking these opioids for uh, a couple weeks. And so then I stopped and I'm dealing with it. It's That's a much different situation 
than somebody who's been taking opioids for years or who has an addiction issue uh, with them using cannabis. So I think that those are some nuances that are going to play out differently as time goes on. And what's the strength of the evidence of cannabis for opioid use disorder as opposed to chronic pain? There is no evidence category for that uh, as far as I'm aware of in the, you know, the 2017 report. There were a couple papers, including one of mine, that was cited in there saying, you know, that it's suggestive that people are looking into this. But at this point, I don't believe there are any clinical trials that have explicitly showed that that people can use successfully use cannabis in an opioid sparing way and that's in pretty stark comparison to the clinical trials on cannabis and chronic pain in which there have actually been quite a few done it's the the national academies of sciences engineering and medicine report uh, show that they put the evidence category of substantial uh, on chronic pain. So, you know, there's considerably more evidence there. Obviously, more work needs to be done, but the comparison is pretty much no evidence for the, the addiction, opioid use disorder, and chronic pain. I'm not sure if you saw it, but in a recent editorial in the Wall Street Journal, Dr. Peter Bach of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center took the position that marijuana is not medicine. He seemed to agree with your conclusion that it should be legalized, but thinks we should place marijuana in the same category that we put alcohol and tobacco in and not pretend it's medicine. Your paper notes that marijuana is a Schedule I drug and as such, research opportunities are limited what do you think of his opinion, and do you think that more research does need to be done uh, before marijuana becomes more medicalized? I think that there's a few different, you know, threads of of potential conversation going on in there. If if we're talking about smoked marijuana or smoked cannabis, you know, that's that's much different than say looking at Epidiolex, the recently approved GW Pharmaceuticals product, or uh, nabiximals or Sativex, which is also made by GW Pharmaceuticals. That's a one-to-one THC to CBD sublingual spray that's been approved in many countries, but not the U.S. And obviously, those are kind of the opposite end of this of the spectrum. Epidiolex has been FDA approved, and smoked or vaporized cannabis has not. I think one of the the issues with this conversation is just putting it all in the same place. So. The cannabis plant has hundreds of active compounds in it. I think it's it's definitely possible that many of them have potential therapeutic value. A lot of preclinical researchers looking at that, clinical trials are being done to better figure that out. And so I don't want to discount that and say, oh, you know, it can only be, we should just call it recreational. That being said, of course, cannabis can be used recreationally. Uh, that's one of the ways that it is commonly used in this country. To deny that is to deny reality. It's one of those things that we come, can come back to where it's a both situation. Yes, it can be a recreational substance, and especially when it's being sold in an adult use recreational style setting, it should be treated as such. 
But yes, it can also be used in a medical context and we need to do more research to better figure out how best to do that in a safe and evidence-based way. Be that finding the specific cannabinoids that are most effective or the combinations of them that are uh, most effective or figuring out, you know, the different formulations or administration groups that are effective for people. I mean, one thing is for certain is that we have, at least based on the data from our paper, there are hundreds of thousands of medical cannabis patients uh, in this country uh, who are licensed. That that number is likely an underestimate because it doesn't include many of the states that have come online since 2016, as well as California, which is you know, far and away the largest state and it had uh, unreliable data. So we don't know how many people are using cannabis there. You know, obviously some of those are probably using it in an an adult use recreational context, but clearly many of them are using it in a medical context as well. So I think we just need to really make sure we are accurately discussing which of these subgroups we're talking about, as well as you know, the ways in which cannabis is actually being used within those contexts, because all of that nuance really does matter. To that point in your paper, you talk about the medicalized versus non-medicalized model in regards to cannabis prescribing in different states. For people listening who don't know what that is in terms of medicalized versus non-medicalized, can you describe it and how it affects our understanding about the impact of marijuana laws? Medicalized laws have, the laws that we considered medicalized versus unmedicalized, these were defined in a previous paper that also came out in Health Affairs. And the medicalized components that we consider uh, to be medicalized are having a legitimate doctor-patient relationship, having regulations on manufacturing and dispensing, having safety and potency testing and labeling, physician training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the difference between a medicalized and a non-medicalized state is medicalized states have multiple components that of those things that would, uh, you know, regulate the supply chain, that would ensure that, that patients are talking to their physician about this, that make sure that the products are safe, that kind of stuff. While non-medicalized states don't really have those components of the law so that the regulations are more squishy, more up in the air. And so, for example, in Michigan, uh, where I live, one of the non-medicalized states, the law was passed in 2008, and it's now 2019. It was in 2018 that we started putting together the rules and regulations to govern this industry. And so before that, there was... There wasn't much guidance about safety and potency testing. And when you're thinking of in a medical context, that's actually problematic. You want people to have something that's been tested to make sure it's safe. You want them to know how much THC or CBD or whatever cannabinoids they're getting. You want them to make sure it has no pesticides, that it has no solvents in it. That's the difference between the medicalized and the non-medicalized states within the context of this paper. There's also a big difference in uh, enrollment between the states in which non-medicalized states seem to have many, many more registered medical cannabis patients. And some of that might be due to the 
the fact that many of the states have older medical cannabis laws. And some of that might be due to the fact that if you don't have to have something like a legitimate doctor-patient relationship or something of that nature, then it's much easier to obtain a, a medical cannabis license so there's more people who are doing so. I, I think that there's, again, a lot, of, a lot of things at play there. In your paper, you talk about a registry of patients using cannabis for medical conditions. Are you talking about a national registry? And if so, who would monitor that? Well, that's a great question. I like the idea of a national registry for a few reasons, but I don't think that it would be feasible unless cannabis was rescheduled from Schedule 1 under the Controlled Substances Act, because you can't really safely keep a national list of people using, you know, a Schedule 1 substance and have that administered by, you know, the federal government without there being some really problematic issues there. Um, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, what I would like to see is the states who have legalized medical cannabis to figure out what kind of reporter and guidelines they want to put into place. So what kind of data do they collect from patients? Is it qualifying condition? Is it age? Whatever it might be, but have it be standardized across states. From a research perspective, it would be ideal to be able to contact and work with these these uh, registered patients in some way, um, say, you know, contacting them for studies or things of that nature, because something that is happening in this situation is we're at a time where the policy is around medical cannabis is far ahead of the science and clinical trials take a long time to complete do all the recruitment and the analysis and publish the paper, et cetera. And so we have to have those because, you know, those are the gold standard of clinical research. That's what we base a lot of our medical decision-making on. But so many people are using cannabis right now, and many of them have figured out ways that work for them specifically. And so I think it would be a real shame not to collect some of that information to help inform what conditions might be worthwhile uh, to pursue in the, in the short term. What, what is the lowest hanging fruit? What are the types of administration routes and ways to use them together with different cannabinoid formulations to provide the best symptom control as well as uh, minimizing harm and maximizing benefit? I think those are things that combining the observational data that we could collect in such a registry with clinical trials that are ongoing and will continue to be ongoing, that combining those things would really be valuable to inform this moving forward so that hopefully one day the science can catch up with the policy. Do you think that is feasible to happen anytime soon? I'm thinking about state prescription drug monitoring programs where my understanding is that they are not even standardized across the country. Yeah, I I think that, you know, the feasibility is it's it's quite a long shot at this point, but you know, I I have heard of several patient registries that are being launched by different institutions and I think the goal of those is to recruit people countrywide specifically for this purpose. And and those will not be run by the federal government. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a really important point that if the prescription drug monitoring programs are not even standardized, then 
is it feasible to say, you know, let's have a national cannabis registry in the next two years? I don't think so, but I think it is important to, you know, have a vision of where this could go and how we could best do this in the future so that we can avoid making the same mistakes that we have in the past. Is there anything else you want to say about this paper? Mm, I think you asked some really good questions. Well, I guess one point that I would make is that there's many, many qualifying conditions that are allowed in many states with uh, legal medical cannabis that have little or no evidence of efficacy. Even though the majority of patient-reported qualifying conditions are for conditions that have substantial or conclusive evidence of efficacy, the fact that all of these other conditions are still allowed, I think it's, it's one of the things that really just highlights this mismatch between where the science and the policy are at. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for speaking with us today on Managed Carecast. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. To learn more about medical marijuana, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.